Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, what's happening with the 2022 FIFA World Cup? It was extremely difficult to come up with a title for this episode because there are quite literally too many questions about this World Cup. Why is it in European winter? Why is it in Qatar? Why are regimes in the Middle East so interested in soccer? Why is sport so tainted by bad governance and corruption? That is the politics. And then, of course, there is the sport. Players dream of playing for their country on the biggest stage. Fans hope that their team will make it and they can set out on a trip of a lifetime. We all hope in Ireland for another Italian 90. How then can all of this come together in the next few weeks? Incidentally, sports writers also dream about their first World Cup. So just before he gets on and playing to guitar for his first ever, the 42 soccer writer Gavin Cooney has stopped by to talk all things guitar, FIFA and football. Hey Gavin. Hey Sinead, how are you? So you did dream of your first World Cup? Yeah, I mean I've always wanted to, uh, I won't say this World Cup in particular, but I've always wanted to work at a World Cup. It's obviously like professionally an incredible opportunity to go and watch the highest level of football and be at the centre of the biggest story in the world. Uh, so to get the opportunity to do it is amazing. Um, would I prefer if it was uh, a slightly uh, more upbeat um, and uh, less morally dubious run into the World Cup? Yes, I would. Um, but at the same time, I, I can't but look forward to it. Right, let's kick off. First things first, why is the World Cup being held in November, December, as opposed to in the summer when it usually is? Because it's being hosted in Qatar and it is too hot to play football in the desert during the summer uh, is the short reason. Um, so Qatar uh, successfully bid to host the 2022 World Cup back in 2010. There were a number of countries bidding to win uh, the competition. I know the US were in it. Australia had a bid. Japan had a bid. And initially, the bid was to host the World Cup during the summer. Now, naturally, you're thinking, well, that seems like obvious madness. Qatar insisted that the heat wouldn't be a problem. They said that there would be air-conditioned stadiums. They would air-condition all the seats and the stands. But, like, I mean, FIFA do... um, did uh, commission risk reports looking at the various bids and it did flag that the heat would be an issue here at Qatar. But the people who voted for it uh, didn't really seem to read it. Uh, There is an independent report into FIFA which saw the minutes of meetings before the World Cup was awarded uh, on two separate meetings. The heat was never mentioned and it was only after the World Cup was awarded that they realised, well, hang on, we might have to change this. So speculation as to whether it would be moved started Within nine days of when the World Cup was awarded, Michel Platini said that it would be great to have the World Cup in the Gulf. That's why he voted for it, but it would have to move to the winter. And eventually, finally, in 2015, it was officially confirmed that the World Cup for the first time would be played outside the European summer. That wasn't the only controversy about Qatar's bid winning the World Cup. It was steeped in controversy. I mean, FIFA has always had a stench of corruption off it. Go back to the early 2000s, the General Secretary, uh, Michel Zenruffinen, alleged that the then President Sepp Blatter was involved in corruption and nothing was ever um, officially proven. Um, and Blatter was re-elected as president at the election shortly after those allegations were made. And Zenruffinen was swiftly defenestrated. So everyone has had a has always questioned FIFA. There's a total lack of independent oversight or any kind of third-party regulation of FIFA. And then when they um, awarded to Qatar during the summer, you're thinking, hang on a minute. Like, is this the moment that they've flown too close to the sun? It just seems so obviously 
absurd at the time. I remember the comedian John Oliver said that hosting the World Cup in the desert during the summer is like playing the Super Bowl on a lake. Like it, it just simply doesn't work. Uh, there's a story in uh, David Kahn is a brilliant Guardian journalist on this subject and many others. And he wrote a book called The Fall of the House of FIFA. And he quoted the then she- Secretary General of FIFA, Jerome Valk, saying, if this goes to Qatar, we're finished. Uh, and as it turns out, that was relatively prophetic so to to explain the allegations of corruption I think you need to understand how the World Cup was awarded and who did the awarding so the decision was made by a majority vote on FIFA's board it was then called the executive committee it was made up uh, back then of 24 men and they were all men, all elected from the continental federations. So that's UEFA covering Europe, CONMEBOL covering South America, the CAF covering Africa. So all the various continents had their own federation and they made this up. And then those 24 men had a vote. Um, well, 24 men should have had a vote. Two of them were kicked off the committee just before the vote because they were found by the Sunday Times to be uh, soliciting bribes for their votes. Then it went to Qatar. I mean, subsequently, nothing has officially stuck to Qatar. I mean, there was an independent report commissioned by FIFA, um, led by the American attorney, Michael Garcia, which gave it a clean bill of health, found that Qatar As in, there was no rules. N- there was no bribery, there was no brown envelopes, there was no kind of very traditional mm, <laughs> corruption yeah. involved. Nothing officially found. Now, they did say the rules were a bit lax and that Qatar, you know, found loopholes and exploited them, but within the rules, for instance, that they went to... Uh, uh, there was a Congress of the African Confederation held in Angola that the Qatar bid just sponsored, which allowed them to go and to present that why you should host Qatar. And there's nothing technically wrong about this, which is a which is a major kind of loophole because there's other bids naturally looking. Well, that, that, that gives them an advantage in terms of their meeting people and convincing people of their case. And we don't have that uh, that equivalent stage. So things like that went ahead. There was... I mean, there was a major allegation of corruption at that Congress in Angola. Um, so shortly after the World the World Cup was awarded to Qatar, that stench of corruption was stronger than ever. So naturally, there's plenty of investigation and digging around for it. Uh, but they were investigating themselves, were they? Like you just said, there, FIFA held an independent investigation into the FIFA executive was, board decision. Was, yeah, to so that was commissioned by FIFA and led by Michael Garcia. Now, I think it had more... He had more investigative teeth than some people perhaps expected. Um, And Qatar, in fairness, he believed, cooperated fully. So, like, the 2018 World Cup went to Russia. Russia didn't cooperate. This is an American attorney, so he couldn't get a visa to get into Russia in the first place. And then when they went looking for the computers on which everything was stored, they said, oh, we leased those computers and they've been destroyed. Sorry about that. Um, Qatar, in fairness, had everything for them. So, I mean, he he would say that... um, partly based on that, that he gave them the clean bill of health. They found no official corruption. But I mean, so so to go back, there, naturally, uh, there was lots of kind of journalism and lots of investigations uh, launched around this after it went to Qatar. And there was a whistleblower that went to the Sunday Times, a whistleblower who worked as part of the Qatari bid before leaving it in somewhat acrimonious circumstances before the, uh, before the bid was awarded. And she claimed uh, that the Qataris bribed three of the officials on the board of FIFA who made the decision at that Congress in Angola. So she tells the story of how the three men were brought in, each brought into one room one by one and given $1.5 million for the development of football in their region. Now that is not, they didn't explicitly say, put that money in your pocket, but it's for the development of football in your region and then we're going to check the receipts. So there's a lack of oversight on the money. So she alleged this 
the Sunday Times couldn't stand it up and couldn't verify it. But what they did do is passed it to the UK government who could read it out under parliamentary privilege which they did, and that naturally kicked off a massive firestorm. Qatar strongly rejected the bid, saying that this was a vindictive whistleblower looking to in a kind of an act of revenge. Not huge media firestorm, and about six weeks later, uh, a website popped up out of nowhere with a statement from this whistleblower retracting all her claims. She, sw- she swore an affidavit, said she made the whole thing up, and retracted everything. And then subsequently, when on that aforementioned report commissioned by FIFA, conducted by Michael Garcia, she said, actually, all I made up was the retraction. What I initially said was true, but I was put under duress by Qatar, uh, by the people involved in the bid, to um, to renounce my initial allegations. Now, um, that investigation looked into whether she's a credible witness and found that she wasn't. Her testimony was based off the diary she took at the time. That was her evidence. And she had described one person in the room who apparently couldn't have been in the room because Qatar found like credit card receipts showing that he was back in Doha in Qatar at the time and the Garcia report decided that she was not a credible witness and so it didn't stick to them. So all of this to say is it couldn't be messier and it couldn't be more football really. It couldn't be messier and it couldn't be more football completely. It Just to kind of ask maybe a very basic question that people might have is, is football even popular in Qatar? I mean, they, I mean the people organising will say yes, that they have a big passion for football. But in reality, no, it's a small population. I mean, they, they, they have no real history of achievement in their national team has no real history of achievement. Qatar does have a small football league, but it's poorly supported. Uh, I don't mean to sound flippant when I say it, but like generally it's the working population in a country that will su- go and support football. And the working population in Qatar are generally always working. Like they don't have time to go to see football. So they have no real history of football, whether it's popular as a for expat, wealthy expats to watch on television, Probably is, uh, but in terms of on the ground, no, not not massively. So then the next question follows, why is Qatar doing this? Why did it want the World Cup? It's about the $250 billion question, I think. I mean, a lot of people think we'll use the phrase sports washing and think that this is Qatar sports washing its image. So sports washing is, has been defined as regimes using the vehicle of sport to launder and improve their image and kind of scrub away the images of uh, outrages at home or obscenities at home. And I think that is part of it, but I think it overlooks, it is complex and multi-layered, but effectively sport in Qatar is one plank of their nation building. So Qatar is a tiny country. Um, it's a it's smaller than Cork and Kerry put together, but it's also sitting in a gold mine in terms of uh, oil and an enormous natural gas reserves that you know it has made them as the wealthiest country in the world GDP per capita. But that gives them power, but they're also strategically very vulnerable. They're a tiny country. They do they have done traditionally what's called hedging um, in a geopolitical sense. So they've generally tried to keep everyone happy. So they provided a home for the Taliban when they were exiled. They have really strong relations with Iran, but at the same time, they have the biggest US air base in the Gulf. So they've always tried to kind of keep people happy. And football was one part of this nation building. They wanted to show that if we bring the World Cup here, we A, show that we're kind of respected members of the international community because we can deliver on promises. You know, we say we'll host this, we will, which gives them a certain level of credibility uh, among the international community, for want of a better phrase. And another part of it is nation building, if you think about it. I mean, by Qatar hosting the World Cup, the one thing that they guaranteed was that everyone in the world knew 
what Qatar was, which a lot of people did not know prior to hosting the World Cup. And like it was a big nation branding exercise. So they hosted the World Cup. Uh, they've also hosted other major sports events like the World Athletics Championships, the World Handball Championships. There is constant speculation that they'll bid for the Olympic Games in 2036. Uh, and they've also invested massively in European football. They bought... Paris Saint-Germain, they've sponsored clubs like Roma, which which puts Qatar Airways on the front of their shirt. So all that builds up an idea that that this is its own country uh, in the West. And that is, you know, there's a, if listeners are interested in reading more on the topic, there's a really good book by a sociologist called John McManus titled Inside Qatar. And he says that this was partly as a hedge to avoid invasion from Saudi Arabia. And it, it, it projects power, but also projects just the idea of the nation. Now, whether... I mean, countries have always used sport for their own ends and political leaders have always used sport for their own ends. And that, I think, are, are some of the some of the reasons why they wanted to toast the World Cup. I know I'm kind of going on, but one other element of it is actually diversification. So, I mean, they're sitting on a gold mine, but it is going to run out. I mean, they're now, maybe they've got another couple of hundred years of gas reserves, but Qatar would be aware that, you know, where they are, they're near the equator, they're down by the sea, they're massively at risk, you know, and there is a pragmatic realisation that they need to diversify their economy. Like, I mean, something like 80 odd percent of their income comes from the oil and gas they take from the ground. So this is great for tourism. You know, I mean, this is, uh, you know, this is, a, this is the idea that um, you invite the world to Qatar, they'll sit on a comfortable Qatar Airways plane, they'll fly into Doha, they'll be brought to a swanky hotel down by the waterfront, they'll go see some f- football, everything will, in their view, work nicely and they'll want to come back. You've explained really well there why this isn't sports washing, but you can also understand why people may have thought it was given the human rights abuses that we have heard about over the last few years. Can you tell us a little bit about what we have been hearing? Mm, so the, the main obscenity really from a, a human rights point of view is the treatment of migrant workers, the ones who had to build a stadium like no Naturally, no World Cup has ever seen an infrastructure project like this. They've built, I think it's six stadia, they've built airports, they've built metros, they've built motorways, they've built an entire city and pretty much, you could say, an entire country to do this. But all the labour in in Qatar is largely made up of migrant labourers coming from poor countries in Africa and other poor neighbouring countries like Nepal and Bangladesh. And up until 2018, everyone in Qatar was employed under what's called the Kafala system, K-A-F-A-L-A, which is a system of sponsorship. So the responsibilities for um, effectively overseeing workers was outsourced to companies. So this led to exploitation um, and it was equated to modern day slavery by Human Rights Watch. So if you're a migrant labourer coming from abroad, you had to, you're often charged a recruitment fee which base, uh, for the right to come to Qatar, which are illegal, but they were charged anyway. Uh, workers were often subject to contract substitution when they arrived. So the terms that they agreed back in Nepal, say, all of a sudden they arrived in Qatar and they were given far less money and they're like, what are you going to do about it? And then their employer could take their passport. So they couldn't leave the country without their employer's uh, say-so. They couldn't change jobs without their employer's say-so. And then they had to work long hours in extremely difficult conditions and then live in these, live cheek by jowl in these unsanitary migrant labour camps They're th- that are really horrible. So there have been some improvements since, but... I mean, I mean, Amnesty International and other human rights groups would say that there is a gap between the reality on the ground and the rhetoric on paper. They've technically abolished the kafala system, um, but for that to trickle down and to change the attitudes of employers is not 
happening to the extent that perhaps should be. Um, and then the the greatest barbarity of all is that migrant laborers have died in building stadiums for this World Cup. Now, how many is uh, we won't we will never know the exact figure. How many is um, fiercely contested? The Guardian reported in 2021 that six and a half thousand migrant workers had died since Qatar had been awarded the World Cup. That's not those working just on infrastructure projects, but across all the migrant labor population. Uh, the Qatar Committee for Delivery charged with who have the responsibility of the World Cup rejected that they cried sensationalism but they also added the kind of chilling justification that the number of deaths has been proportional to the migrant labor population now FIFA have said that three migrant workers have died and that's you know those who've died in stadiums but I mean arguing over the number of migrant workers who died in the stadium is a moral obscenity anyway because one is one too many and the scandal is that we don't have a true figure because the data is not good enough I mean the fact that we, the fact we don't know how many is a real, I think, is a real scandal that has probably not been sufficiently addressed by by the media. That that reality hasn't seeped down into the discourse. I don't think because Qatar have have they haven't provided the data. Like, and it, it does seem like they're not they don't want to find the data. So, I mean, uh, heat stress is not an occupational disease in in Qatar. Um, and you've got you've got these men in their twenties and thirties coming from Nepal and elsewhere. They do medicals before they arrive. They're fit young men, and then they're recorded as having died from uh, heart attacks. I mean, what, why is that happening? And it's probably a result of working uh, in such extreme heat. They don't. The data doesn't disaggregate work-related deaths from non-work-related deaths. Uh, post-mortems, I think, are only ever are only carried out if the suspicion is uh, it was a criminal death. So the numbers, ha- I mean, the data has not been fully published and has not been properly interrogated. And for those reasons, we don't know how many. And that's just another kind of seedy underbelly to this World Cup. The other big talking point going into the World Cup has been Qatar's treatment of LGBT people. Um, can you explain what happens in, in Qatar? So homosexuality is illegal in Qatar. Um, being gay is punishable by up to seven years in prison under their penal code. So it is extremely hostile. It is a very hostile environment. Um, you know, gay Qataris cannot be openly gay in the country. And as regards the World Cup, FIFA insists that everyone is welcome. But again, no one is really sure how these words said at, said in press releases and said by those organizing the tournament um, will actually come into effect on the ground. Like, how do you change decades-long attitudes of those enforcing the Qatari penal code on the ground. I mean, there is, FIFA said that, you know, if you fly a rainbow flag, you'll be fine. And that's what the Qatar uh, security services have been told, that they're to allow someone fly a rainbow flag in protest at the tournament. But uh, an official overseeing security of the World Cup in March of this year said that if anyone is flying a rainbow flag, it'll be taken off them for their own protection, which is a very curious way of justifying it. And, and it also feeds into this other this other issue with the World Cup is regardless of what FIFA and other organizations say to assuage the concerns of those going, no one is really quite sure what the reality will be on the ground because the atmosphere of the country and the laws of the country are so inherently hostile. There's also, just to jump again to another uh, issue, there's also been a lot of talk about this tournament being net zero. The Qataris claim that it is net zero uh, in terms of emissions. Is there any truth to that, knowing what you've said about the building of the infrastructure, the fact that the uh, stadiums will have air conditioning? Mm. 
as, as far as I know that they're measuring from the day the tournament kick, kicks off on Sunday, November, what is it, 19th until the end, until the final on December 18th. I mean, extremely is, generous uh, to themselves. <laughs> exactly. So they may be net zero between them. And if that is the case, fair play to them. But the, I mean, to make a blindingly obvious point, the World Cup does not begin with the first game of the tournament. It began when the Qatari uh, bid team started jetting around the world trying to convince people to vote for them. And it, and it has continued since. And the building of the stadiums, it has continued since with qualifying you know I mean there's these massive uh, like teams across the world all teams from all parts of the world across the world to play qualifying matches which obviously has a massive carbon footprint in and of itself but none of that is being taken into consideration and nor being taken into consideration are the unique aspects of the environment in Qatar so to give one short example there's no natural water in Qatar so how they get their drinking water is they take it from the sea they desalinate the water they take the salt water out of the sea but that is a very energy heavy um, process um, so that actually contributes that has a because of a negative effect um, in terms of uh, in terms of carbon emissions because it's quite an energy intensive process so th- there's obviously this is why you're not as excited as you could be about your mm. first ever professional world cup but obviously there will be football played <laughs> on pitches in air-conditioned stadiums but what type of difference will it actually make that that they're the conditions like it's not a summer world cup it's in these kind of very different kind of stadiums, what will that mean for the football? It's difficult to fully know. It has meant that players are missing the World Cup over minor injuries that wouldn't have caused them to miss a previous World Cup because they've had to play so many games with their club before this. I mean, the club season only ended, will only end seven days before the World Cup starts. So there are, you know, Sadio Mane of Senegal, who I'm sure the Liverpool fans listening to this podcast will hold in high regard, is going to miss the first game and might miss the whole thing with injury. So that's one issue. I mean, you could argue the players will be less tired, you know, like Lionel Messi's weary limbs won't be quite as weary in the wintertime as they would be in the summertime at the end of uh, of a long club season. I also think that maybe I'm only guessing here and speculating. You might see a few upsets in the early stages of the tournament just because it takes a little bit of time for teams to get into a rhythm. And usually where they have a three week build up in camp and we'll have a couple of friendlies to tune up, it's straight into it. I mean, there's teams landing in Qatar Tuesday, Wednesday, and then they're, you know, into summer into a game within within six days of landing. And how do the players feel about, I guess there's two aspects to this question. How do the players feel about it being in Qatar in the winter and in these kind of conditions? And then how do they feel about playing in Qatar, given all the controversies we've just been talking about? Yeah, I mean, very few players have said much on the subject. Bruno Fernandes of Manchester United and who will be there for Portugal did say on Sunday that we don't want this. We don't want it in the world in the wintertime. He made a very good point that everyone's in school. I mean, the World Cup is so important in terms of inspiring kids to want to become footballers at the World Cup or in some cases quickly realise you can't be a footballer <laughs> but maybe try to get there as a journalist. Um, so, I mean, he doesn't. He, he says it's a strange time. It is all kind of out of joint. You know, you want the World Cup to stand alone in the summertime. Uh, very few players have actually, you know, put, about, put their heads above the parapet and said anything. Um, the probably who distinguished themselves actually is the Australia team. So a few weeks ago, they released a video on social media of the entire squad, having said that we've learned more about Qatar and they called for two specific actions. They want homosexuality decriminalized in the country and they've also uh, echoed Amnesty International's call for FIFA to set up a fund of $440 million uh, of for remediation of the families of workers who have been killed and also of the workers who've been ripped off uh, with unpaid wages or else have been injured while working in the World Cup. 
they distinguish themselves with that. We will see more subtle protests as the World Cup goes on. Uh, many of the European captains will wear an armband bearing uh, the slogan One Love in rainbow colours. But you see FIFA, FIFA will interpret that as a political slogan. Um, you know, the, the Denmark players requested permission to wear T-shirts bearing the slogan human rights at training and FIFA said no because it's a political slogan which I think neatly encapsulates the organisation we're dealing with here. So I was going to ask how did they respond to the Australian video but that probably sums it up. The Qatari uh, organisational authorities their response was kind of interesting because all of their responses to what media criticism has been very strident and to reject it as this is Western prejudice. They, they constantly talk about it's, you know, it's actually it's racist of you to criticize us because you just can't agree with a World Cup in the Gulf and in the Islamic world. To which the obvious response is, no, we don't. But the issue is, I mean, it's held in the wintertime and it's the stadiums have built, been built on the bones of of unaccounted for migrant workers uh, and it's in a country which is <laughs> which is hostile to a massive number of football fans and who knows some people who may be involved in the football itself um but they were far less strident in responding to the criticism from the Australian players. They merely said, well, look, not everyone is perfect, which again is a very, very questionable response. But I found it very interesting that they that they were their, their tone was a lot softer in responding to the players, which goes to show a the, the strength of the player's voice, their voice will stand up above all others. And then, you know, the other questions have been, why don't players boycott this World Cup? Because they have the power, like a player boycott would bring, would, kill the World Cup like it would bring it to its knees I, my personal opinion was also was always that it's not fair to expect that of them because this is you know a lot of, this might be the, their only shot at representing their country in the highest stage like this is something that they've spent their lives trying to achieve why should they have to forsake that because of the decisions of 22 FIFA Blazers in a dark and smoke filled room and that collective action there's probably no precedent or way of even doing that collective action it's very hard to know. I mean, I don't know, to be honest. I mean, I can't think of an equivalent. I think there has been equivalent in in sport, maybe maybe apartheid South Africa, maybe. Um, so, yeah, those massive collective boycotts have happened before. Um, I don't know. My opinion was always that it was unfair to socialise the blame on, on, of this among the players. But then you see the the impact that, that, that a video from the Australian players had and you think, well, maybe... Maybe it would have been powerful. And and you look at the power of players, even from the past, people like David Beckham and Gary Neville, who have done the opposite, who are working to promote the Qatar World Cup. But that has created controversy for themselves. Gary Neville is apparently going to work for BN Sports, who is the Qatari broadcaster. Now, he believes that he can raise these issues on Qatari television. You know, Gary Neville has always been kind of guided by this belief that he can achieve anything. Um, I think he realized when he went on How I Got News For You that perhaps that's not quite going to work. He was, at, you know, he asked, is it coming home? And he and his laboratory replied, are we talking about your reputation? <laughs> We're not so sure. And David Beckham is a paid ambassador for the Qatar World Cup, um, which is... Quite remarkable when you when you think about it, you know. Um, I ten million pounds seems to be the price. There's been some news reports that put it at one hundred and fifty million, which I find hard to believe. Uh, but then again, every man has its price. I didn't realize that David Beckham's would be ten million, but but there you go. I think uh, 
I mean, he's been mad. His old teammate Eric Cantona has criticized him very heavily. He thinks Beckham is crazy to be doing what he's doing as a paid ambassador to promote Qatar. I think Beckham has been has tried to be judicious in what he appears, and he he pedals out that you know Qatar is a great country and what a great passion for football and what a great place to come. And um, but he is naturally compromised in. Uh, I think it compromises him for other parts of his life and his career for the rest of his for the rest of his life, but. You know. Absolutely. I'm so sorry we've digressed from the football again because that's what it's will hard, happen in this World Cup. Like, yeah. um, but tell us, who do we want to get in the World Cup sweepstakes in the office? Who who are the favourites? Yeah, it's amazing that this is kind of an afterthought a few days out from the World Cup. Um, I think Brazil look very strong. I think they're the tournament favourites. Brazil and Argentina, actually. We, we haven't had a non-European winner, I think, since 2002, since Brazil won it. So, I mean, maybe either of those two... I mean, France have a ridiculous, are stacked with ridiculous talent and we'll see them, sadly, against Ireland and you're qualifying next year. Uh, but they have injuries in midfield and there is just a sense that maybe this, maybe the manager Didier Deschamps has overstayed his welcome. France have a habit of following a World Cup final with by blowing up on the launch pad. They did it in 02, having won in 98. They did it in 2010, having made the final in 06. They obviously won in 2018, so we'll see if they do it again. So Brazil or Argentina, I think, and then... Spain went to the semi-finals of the recent Euros. I think they're pretty strong. They might lack an out-and-out striker. So. Any teams that could surprise us or ones that you'll be watching going, oh yeah, they could do something unexpected? I've got, I've got, I've got heavy on Serbia. Uh, I saw Serbia against Ireland. I thought they were excellent. Um, they're so, they've got so much attacking firepower. They're in Brazil's group. Uh, and I think just in terms of games on the group stage to look out for, I quite like the look of Serbia, Switzerland on the final day uh, because I'm kind of expecting that to be a head-to-head to get second spot behind Brazil. There's all kinds of kind of history should we say between those countries as well so I think I, I like the look of Serbia I think the hosts Qatar might surprise us they played Ireland in a friendly here in Dublin in 2021 they were absolutely useless they got beaten 4-0 they were terrible their preparations for this World Cup I mean ironically they're obviously Qatar here because they're hosting the World Cup they actually probably would have qualified on merit is the ironic thing they won in 2019 the Asia version of the European Championships you know which is an incredible achievement really uh, for a country so small uh, they're in with Netherlands Senegal who will probably without be without Sadio Mane which will weaken them in Ecuador They've effectively, where everyone else's preparation hasn't been great, Qatar have been in effectively like a club team training together since September. Uh, the Qatari League shut down to allow them to get on with their preparations. Again, they didn't start very well. They managed to lose a behind-closed-doors friendly to Northern Ireland club Linfield in the head of this. But I think the draw, uh, the draw is relatively kind to them, especially after Mane's injury. So I actually wouldn't be shocked to see Qatar snip, uh, slip through into the last 16. And anyone who'll be really interesting or fun to watch, we did, would like a little bit of fun. Uh, well, I mean, it's always fun to cheer for England's opponents. So uh, I think I think Serbia should be fun. I'm interested to see how well or how badly Ghana will go. Uh, there's a slight Irish link there where the old Irish international Chris Hewton is a technical advisor there. Uh, so he's the uh, kind of the Bobby Robson to the manager, Steve Staunton. Like he's been brought in for a bit of support. They seem like a bit of a mess. The Ghanaian FA. Well, I. I wouldn't say it's unfair to say they're coming into the World Cup on a wing and a prayer, but the Ghanaian FA announced two days of national prayer and fasting in support of their national team uh, last month. So 
it will be interesting to see how Ghana do. I think they might struggle in a group with Uruguay, South Korea and Portugal. As I say, it's going to be interesting to see uh, England and it's not fun, but it will be fascinating to see. I mean, Iran are a very interesting story at this World Cup because it does seem like the, this country does seem to be in the throes of a kind of a revolution at home. And there are people in Iran disavowing the national team as representing the regime and not them. Uh, some of the players have spoken out um, criticizing the regime and supporting uh, women at home for which they have been well have they been dropped the the captain whose name Sally escapes me now I'm sorry has been included in the squad by the manager although the regime seemed to want him to be excluded from the squad so there's all I mean Carlos Kiroz is the manager there and you get the sense he's walking the ultimate political tightrope as a football manager which just goes to show that you know if I mean if the, if the Qatar World Cup achieves nothing else it will it should finally shut up the people who say the sport and politics shouldn't mix I'm about to make the same oh, point <laughs> I'm sorry <laughs> Too much time you. together in the office, Gab. <laughs> so tell us, you are getting on a plane. How can we follow your coverage and the 42's coverage yeah, over the so next few 42 weeks? 42 in the journal, most obviously. Uh, I'll also uh, be on Twitter at gcooney93 if Elon Musk doesn't burn it down beforehand. Um, so yeah, it's so pretty much there and I might pop up uh, here or there. But, um, and then if you sign up to be a member of the 42, uh, you'll get access to our bonus podcast and our newsletters, uh, just giving you a little bit of insight on the ground that you might not get otherwise. So that's members.the42.ie. And I am absolutely biased, but those podcasts will certainly be worth listening to when you're on the ground in Qatar. Gav, thank you so much for coming into us on your busy week and best of luck um, to the World Cup. Thanks, Nate. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thank you to Gav for making the time ahead of his trip to Qatar. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by producers Nikki Ryan and Aoife Barry. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting us so we can continue to make more just like this one. There's a couple of things you can do. Head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to become a monthly subscriber or make a one-off donation. You can also leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's a great way to make sure other people will listen and love it too. Thank you and catch you next time.